Greetings and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we have another update on the star Betelgeuse, and I'll talk about the double star Tegman, this episode's night sky sight. I'll also pay tribute to my dad and his impact on my childhood astronomical adventures. Before we go any further, let's go back to Betelgeuse. New observations by the European Space Agency's very large telescope have shown that the star is not only fading, but is also changing shape. It's thought the changes are due to unusual activity causing the star to eject dust. As a result, astronomers don't believe the star is likely to go supernova anytime soon. I won't lie, I'm a little disappointed, but it was always something of a long shot anyway. One star that's not going anywhere anytime soon is Tegmen, my chosen night sky site for this episode. Tegmen, or Zeta Cancri, is a magnitude 4.7 star that's not easy to find for beginners. For starters, it lies within the constellation of Cancer the Crab, one of the faintest of the zodiac constellations. There's also the problem of its location. It's not found within the main K-shaped pattern of stars that forms the main body of the constellation, but rather a little way to the west instead. If you're familiar with the constellation, you'll probably know where to find the Beehive Cluster. You'll also know that the cluster lies at the center of the constellation within the boundaries of a box defined by four stars. The two most southern stars, Delta and Theta Cancri, can point their way to Tegman. Both Delta and Theta fit within the same field of view of a regular pair of 10x50 binoculars. Once you've found them, look a little to the west so that Theta is on the eastern edge of your field of view. If you're in the northern hemisphere, try looking at about 9pm around the 25th as Cancer will be due south. Put Theta at about the 9 o'clock position within your field of view and Tegman will be roughly in the 4 o'clock position. You'll see a fainter star just a little to its left. Tegman appears pale yellow, while the fainter star is slightly bluish. Turn the telescope towards Tegman and you'll see it split into two. You'll need a magnification of about 100 times for it to be a decent split. The two stars are roughly the same brightness and, in terms of colours, the primary component appears pale yellow, but the companion here appears off-white. As is often the case, the colour of the companion can differ from night to night. On some nights, it's appeared pale blue, while on others, it's appeared violet. All this being said, other observers can see different colours. For example, I did a little digging around, and it seems as though everyone sees a pair of yellow stars except for me. Granted, I'm getting on in years now, so maybe it's just me. Take a look for yourself. What colours do you see? Tiny water may form on the surface of Mars a few days per year, according to research by the Planetary Science Institute. Liquid water is difficult to come by on Mars because ice rapidly dissipates or sublimates into the atmosphere long before it reaches its melting point. That's because the atmospheric pressure on Mars lies near the minimum pressure necessary for liquid water to exist. Mars has plenty of cold, ice-rich regions and plenty of warm, ice-free regions, but icy regions where the temperature rises above the melting point are a sweet spot that is nearly impossible to find. That sweet spot is where the liquid water could form. NASA has selected four Discovery Program investigations to develop concept studies for new missions. Although they're not official missions yet, and some ultimately may not be chosen to move forward, the selections focus on compelling targets and science that are not covered by NASA's active missions or recent selections. 
Final selections will be made next year. Da Vinci Plus will analyse Venus's atmosphere to understand how it formed and evolved and determine whether Venus ever had an ocean. The Io Volcano Observer IVO, will explore Jupiter's moon Io to learn how tidal forces shape planetary bodies. Trident will explore Triton, a unique and highly active icy moon of Neptune, to understand pathways to habitable worlds at tremendous distances from the Sun. Lastly, Veritas would map Venus's surface to determine the planet's geologic history and understand why Venus developed so differently than the Earth. February 18th saw the 90th anniversary of the discovery of Pluto by Clyde Tombaugh, a young astronomer working at Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. In doing so, he unknowingly opened the door to the vast third zone of the solar system we now know as the Kuiper Belt, containing countless planetesimals and dwarf planets, the third class of planets in our solar system. Lowell Observatory's namesake, Percival Lowell, first proposed the existence of a planet X somewhere beyond the orbit of Neptune. Unable to find it before his death in 1916, the search for planet X stalled for nearly a decade until we knew when Tom Bauer was hired in 1929. Tom Bauer found the object on February 18, 1930, at the age of 24, using a Zeiss Blink comparator, a device that allowed him to spot moving objects against the background star fields he had photographed. In another anniversary, Carl Sagan's famous pale blue dot photo turned 30 years old on February 14th. The iconic photograph of planet Earth from distant space, the pale blue dot, was taken at a distance of 3.7 billion miles by the NASA spacecraft Voyager 1 as it zipped towards the far edge of the solar system. The late Cornell astronomy professor Carl Sagan came up with the idea for the snapshot and coined the phrase. NASA's Voyager 1 launched on September 5, 1977 to explore the solar system and beyond. The spacecraft flew past Jupiter on March 5, 1979 and by Saturn on November 12, 1980. A decade later, it was time for a solar system family portrait. On February 13, 1990, NASA and Jet Propulsion Laboratory engineers sent commands to Voyager 1 to face the Earth in order to get the photo. A day later, three images were taken, then NASA shut down Voyager 1's camera permanently to conserve energy for the rest of its decades-long mission. As of February 14, 2020, the elapsed mission time for the Voyager 1 spacecraft was 42 years, 5 months and 10 days. The craft is currently about 13.8 billion miles from Earth and travelling at 38,000 miles per hour. NASA and JPL still keep tabs on it, most recently on February 16th. NASA's Juno mission has provided its first results on the amount of water in Jupiter's atmosphere. The results estimate that at the equator, water makes up about a quarter of a percent of the molecules in Jupiter's atmosphere, almost three times that of the Sun. These are also the first findings on the gas giant's abundance of water since the agency's 1995 Galileo mission suggested Jupiter might be extremely dry compared to the Sun. The comparison is based not on liquid water, but on the presence of its components, oxygen and hydrogen, present in the Sun. Astronomers have observed an exoplanet orbiting a star in just over 18 hours, the shortest orbital period ever observed for a planet of its type. It means that a single year for this hot Jupiter, a gas giant similar in size and composition to Jupiter in our own solar system, passes in less than a day of Earth time. The discovery may help to solve a mystery of whether or not such planets are in the process of spiralling towards their suns through their own destruction. 
Lastly, and sadly, the British astronomer and popularizer Heather Cooper passed away on February 19th after a short illness. Heather had authored over 40 books, was known for her numerous TV appearances and, in 1984, became the first female president of the British Astronomical Association. I met her as a kid at Hertzmanso Castle and remember her well. May she rest in peace among the stars she loved. Mercury and Neptune aren't visible for the last days of the month, but Venus continues to edge further away from the Sun in the sky. It's nearly 41 degrees east of the Sun and still has another month and another couple of degrees before it reaches greatest e eastern elongation. That's when the planet will appear furthest from the Sun and is at its best after sunset. Uranus is still visible in the evening sky and won't set until about 11pm. It still gives you a couple of hours to observe the planet once twilight fades and the skies get completely dark. Venus will pass the planet around the 8th of next month. Early risers can enjoy Mars, Jupiter and Saturn in the pre-dawn sky. Mars is now about 60 degrees west of the Sun and rises first, about 2.5 hours before sunrise. It's slowly brightening, but it's still a disappointed magnitude 1.2 and its disk appears only 5 arc seconds in diameter through a telescope. Jupiter rises about 45 minutes later, with Saturn about 30 minutes later still. Jupiter is an impressive magnitude negative 2, but Saturn is nearly as faint as Mars. Lastly, the moon is new on the 23rd and then returns as a crescent in the evening sky. Look out for it close to Venus on the 26th and 27th. I lost my dad a year ago, on February 21st, 2019. Incidentally, I'd lost my job three days earlier, on February 18th, so that wasn't a fun week. With me living in the US and my parents still in England, I wasn't there when he passed, which honestly is probably just as well. I can't say that Dad and I were especially close when I was a kid. I don't think we really got to know and understand each other until I was in my late 20s, or maybe older. Dad wasn't a hands-on kind of father, and we didn't spend a lot of time together doing father-son stuff, except for one thing. I've said before that I've been into astronomy since I was six, and while Dad didn't go all out to encourage me, he would at least take the occasional passing interest. I think it was because Dad's biggest interest was aircraft, and to some extension he was partly into spaceflight too. He never told me about his memories of Apollo 11 landing on the moon, and unfortunately I never asked. I wish I had. My earliest memory of Dad taking an interest in astronomy was when I was about eight years old. We were on holiday in St. Wolfgang, Austria, and I was using my dad's binoculars to look at the moon. Dad must have asked me about it, because I can remember telling him it was a waxing gibbous phase. Dad just looked at me like I was speaking in tongues. You'd have thought I told him it was some kind of ape. He obviously didn't think I knew what I was talking about, which irritated me at the time. I guess his opinion of me changed over the years. I got my first proper telescope for my 11th birthday. It was a second-hand 3-inch refractor, and it cost my parents 50 quid. Back in the 1980s, before eBay, Craigslist, and all this newfangled internet stuff, if you wanted to buy something used, you'd have to wait for a local paper to come out, and then look in the classifieds at the back. I can remember the night we used it for the first time. It was May 28, 1982, and Dad was almost as excited as I was. You'd have thought it was his. Dad was the one who set it up. Dad was the one who pointed at the moon and took a first look. Then we looked at Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. All three were moving through Virgo at the time. 
In all, my whole family spent an hour and a half outside that night. The next night he was back. This time he brought his friend Bill with him, and we spent nearly an hour looking at the moon and Jupiter. Over the next few years, Dad would sometimes come outside with me when I took the telescope out. We looked at Comet Iris Araki Alcock the following year, and then Comet Halley in 1985. Mum and Dad would also drive me to and from the Luton Astronomical Society, which had meetings every second and last Friday of the month. Every year in August, the Society would have its annual barbecue, time to coincide with the peak of the Parasid Meteor Shower. It was always at the President's house, out in the country somewhere, away from the lights of the town. Mum and Dad would drop me off and stay for a while before going home, but poor Dad would always drive back out at about 2 in the morning to pick me up again. Years later, long after I emigrated, I was back home visiting with my family. It was July 2018. Dad came with my wife Joy and I as we met up with Ross and Frankie Hockham and Mick Scott from the UK Astronomy Group. Other members of the group stopped by too, and we sat in the pub and talked about astronomy for hours. Poor Dad sat there quietly, minding his own business, but he didn't seem to mind. I wish we had more of those stargazing memories. Instead I find myself remembering the day my mum told me he had terminal cancer and he didn't know how long he had. It was October 2018, three months after our trip. My wife and I were going to see Phil Collins in concert that weekend, but all I wanted to do was go home. I won't lie, I got emotional as he sang Take Me Home as his final encore. It sounds silly to say it now, but there was an English guy up on the stage singing Take Me Home in Los Angeles, and as a fellow Englishman, I could totally relate to that. I did go home in early December. Dad didn't want me to make a special trip, but how could I not? Dad was pretty much bedridden and spent most of the time asleep, but we had an early Christmas anyway. I bought Dad a book about the space shuttle, the same one my parents had bought for me the previous Christmas. One Tuesday night, the skies were clear and dark, and I went out into the back garden to have a look. It seemed appropriate that the stars of winter were rising in the east while the summer stars were fading in the northwest. None of the stars were as bright as I remembered them, but I stopped and stared anyway. I tried to think of the last time Dad had stood and stared with me, but I couldn't remember. I stood and stared at the stars. High in the heavens above, the stars shone as they always had. I was home. Is this episode's trivia question? You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book, which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. Let's see if you were paying attention earlier in the podcast. On which date does the Perseid meteor shower reach its maximum? Is it A, April 23rd, B, e, June the 9th, C, July 19th, or D, August 12th? As always, I'll give you the answer in just a few moments. Welcome back. Answer to the trivia question is D, August 12th. The Perseids are one of the most reliable meteor showers, and under ideal conditions, you could see up to 100 an hour. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find stars and stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl forward slash snspod. If you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash 
RJB Amazon US in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash RJB Amazon UK in the United Kingdom. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. And don't forget to come join the Stars and Stuff Facebook group at tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you. <laughs>